in our series for, for the year and we'll resume in the, in the coming year if the Lord hasn't returned by then. This morning, the Caring Church is our topic, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, and this is part 10 in our series on 1 Timothy. So as we enter chapter, chapter 5, in Paul's first letter to, to Timothy, the Apostle continues to address issues, problems, situations in the church in the city of Ephesus. He has moved from heresy, the false teachers who were promoting heresy, the apostasy, those people who stopped coming to church and started following other ways, to address other practical matters. From all appearances, the, the church had a, a wide, the, the church was a reflection of the city of Ephesus. Let's compare it to, to Sydney, San Francisco, London, that type, of, that type of demographic, economic and social, people of different cultures and economic situations were, that, that were a reflection of the city, which is what the church should be. Because of this, uh, Timothy will have to deal with young Pastor Timothy, who was sent there, appointed there by the Apostle Paul, will have to deal with various classes of people in different circumstances who were part of the church. And this is part of his earlier words, expressing the reason for giving these instructions, these very practical instructions to his protege, young Timothy, Namely, so that people know, people in the church know how to behave in God's household. Now, some of Paul's directives in the passage and the words that we just read are not immediately transferable and applicable to us in our current context in Australia without doing some bridging, building a bridge to try to apply to our circumstances. We are talking about something that was written 2,000 years ago. So for this reason, some instructions will be somewhat strange to our modern ears, especially in Australia I'm talking about. I know that in some parts of the world this is still very much the case. Here we have a social security system that provides for the pension for the elderly and the needy, the unemployed, the sick. We have women in the Workforce today, they have careers. Most government social programs today actually originated, were actually started off by churches. And then they were adopted in a wider government structure of providing for the needy. It was actually the emergence of Christianity which first addressed some of the social problems of society, such as orphanages and, and, and care for the, the needy, education, all of that. Today, of course, many of these are now the responsibility of government or many times in combination with church agencies, such as Salvo Care, Anglicare, Nottingham Church and, and many of them who have, get funding from both private and the government sources. But for all of our advances, our society faces many problems and I'm talking 
when I'm speaking here, I'm, I'm putting in our context here in the West, in Australia, that uh, there, we are facing many headwinds in the, not, in the present and also in the not too distant future. For example, we know that we have an ageing population with people living longer. At the turn of the last century, in 1900, at the time of Federation, the life expectancy in Australia, in Australia, was 40 years of age. Now it's double, at least double that. I think it's about 81 for men and about 85 for women. And then we have the issue that many times is, is, is quoted in the newspapers and the media and others, the, the so-called baby boomers, of which I'm a, a club, a, a, you know, a card-holding club member, the baby boomers, 1946 to 1964. I just snuck in there, right? Born in 63. So all these baby boomers, apparently they own all the property, they have all the wealth, they live in the biggest houses... And it's all their fault. Okay? It's all their fault. It's all your fault. It's my fault. Okay? Uh, we're just sucking the life out of society, apparently. Um, and, and we're all reaching uh, the age of retirement. Right? 67 for me. I know some of you, you already got in, snuck in earlier than me. Also, the other problem that we face is there are less children born in the developed world. It used to be over two, I think, for many years. Now it's, I think, 1.6, 1.7. So it's not even replacing the number of kids that are born in Australia, not even replacing those who are dying. So before you start complaining about the number of immigrants that are coming into our country and all of this, these are some of the issues why. We need workers, we need people to pay taxes, we need social, you know, to provide help and such things. And so our social security system will not be able to handle the growing disparity between the number of workers paying tax or the tax bracket will need to, you know, number, the amount of percentage of tax that you're paying will need to keep going up. So that there's a growing disparity between the number of workers paying tax and those who are retired or in need or part of NDIS and all those, all the services that we need to provide, living on a pension and, and what have you. And so what happens is that in an increasingly utilitarian society that you're only worth as much as you contribute, there is less time for those who take and not give. And part of that is the whole issue of the boomers, like many of us here and including myself. Apparently we don't give enough. Just take. So therefore older people, and this is real, this is a real problem, older people even when you joke about it, are feeling increasingly marginalised and discriminated against. So we just push them aside, lock them up, push them aside and, you know, but not include them in mainstream society. Now I think this, the, the words we have here for us as a church therefore are very important for us. What how are we to treat those who are in need and how are we to 
What's the wisdom, that God-given wisdom here as to what we need to do? Because a lot of the stuff that we heard here, I mean, even now as I was reading the Bible, you probably would have thought, well, that's a bit shocking, isn't it, for today's language? How can he say that? But it is God's Word. So I don't need to apologise for God's Word. If you have an issue, take it up with God, not with me. I will try and, and remain as honest as I can with instructions from God to us. So first of all, honouring one another, verses 1 and 2, honouring one another. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. It is unfortunate, but the way the world works is that almost everyone else is treated either as a rival that you have to remove in order to get ahead in work, promotion, all this, you have to remove somebody else, or a friend you can use to get favours, to do stuff for you or to get ahead in life. So either a rival or a friend. But as Christians, that's the way the world works, but as Christians, however, we are to have a very different view of people. A good way to summarise the word here is the way you treat people depends on how you see them, your perception of them, how they are. The way you treat people depends on how you see them. And the principle Paul gives us is that we should relate to people in the church as our family, as part of our family. And there are various, as you know, there are various images for the, the church given to us in the, in the scriptures. The church is described as a flock, sheep, right? It needs a shepherd. It is described as a body with many parts. It is described as a family. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters to those who are believers. So Paul builds on the language here of the family. He, he focuses on one of these images, the focus of the family. Young men should relate to older men like they, are, they were their fathers. Older men should relate to younger men as if they were their sons. We should relate to older women like we would relate to our own mother. And we should treat young women as if they were our daughters or sisters. The thing is, unless we know the person, uh, we've known them for a long time maybe, uh, it's not always easy to tell if someone is younger or older than yourself. So it's always dangerous, for example, when somebody says to you, how old do you think I am? Right? And I say, uh? And so usually, you know, go a lot lower because just to be, you know, polite... Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not so. This is why in Myanmar, for example, uh, it's not considered rude for someone you, you have never met, whether in church or in society or whatever, wherever, to ask for their age. How old are you? And so, you know, Western Amazon, like, what? Hang on. I don't know, I like that. Okay. 
But it is in fact, for them, it is in fact a very practical, quick way for people to know how to respectfully address you. If you're older, there's a respect. If you're younger, it's a certain way. If you're the same age, there's, it's a different way to approach It's very practical. I think that's a very, to us it's a little bit shocking perhaps, but for us there's a very practical application of Paul's words to Timothy. How are you to treat people in church? Now, obviously, as a family, if we are to treat each other as a family, it doesn't mean we will always understand each other or agree with each other, just like normal families. Do we always get along? Well, we try to, but we must at all times show respect, honour, seek the best for each other. If we're a family in the Lord, then we ought to treat each other with kindness, gentleness, honesty, love, protect each other. Perhaps a good summary of of these first two verses is that the church should be characterised by intergenerational respect and honour. Intergenerational respect and honour. We're a family. Where there's grandpa, there's pa, grandpa and the grandkids and everybody together and the great grandkids. Some of you are going to experience that now come Christmas time. Now let's look at these individually. Paul says to exhort older men, exhort older men. Remember last week we spoke about the fact that Timothy, you know, don't don't people lose respect, of, lose respect for you because of your age or look down on you because of your age? Don't be scared to tell them the truth, to exhort them, to encourage them, to, because it's one of the hardest things to do, to correct someone, especially if they are older. We've been caught up in that situation. But something needs to be said. The easiest thing would be to say nothing, just let it go. But when you do have to say something, make sure that you're, trying, you're seeking the best, you're trying to encourage them. So we should seek to exhort older men when they are out of line and lovingly urge them to live lives honouring to God. Because not just because you're old you're going to behave in a godly way. Right? Being old doesn't, is not automatic godliness, right? Sometimes old people need to be pulled into line as well. Unlike Australia, the ancient world and many parts of the world today have great respect, having said all that, have great respect for those who have reached old age. I think I've, certainly from the time I grew up in Paraguay and, and from the 70s and 80s when I've grown up in, in Australia that it used to be the case that on public transport, uh, bus or train, you might see a younger person rise and give up the seat for someone who is older or a lady who is pregnant. I travel on train through Europe uh, for three months and 
They got signs, they got everything, and do you think they get up? No. There's an old person, you know, with a walking stick, and there's a young kid, you know. I said, you know, I'm standing up. I'm, it's packed. They're not going to get up their seat. I don't care who they are. And some of these kids are next to their mums. And not even the, the mummy saying, you know, come and sit on my lap and let this older person sit. Intergenerational respect and honour. With younger men, we can be a bit more direct with them. Hey, buddy, what's going on? Yeah? A bit more knockabout, I suppose. He might respond and say, don't buddy me, you know. But we, it's like our brother, right? Hopefully not too many punch-ups, as, as it used to occur with our brothers and sisters, right? But we still do so with love, with, with brothers. That's with younger men. I have older women treat them as mothers. I have already shared with you a, a very personal experience with my dear late mother who passed away, went to be with the Lord last year. And uh, you might recall, I, I told this story here and I also told it at her funeral that it was one of the most difficult things for me to do as a pastor. And I had to switch hats from being a son, respecting mum, and a pastor. Talking to my mother, who was also previously a pastor's wife. And I had to speak to her about her behaviour under pressure. And she was, under, she was serving under a lot of pressure. And the temper got the best of her. And I humbly and lovingly had to do this without humiliating her in front of others. And yet when I did talk to her about it in a very loving way, her servant heart shone through. She acknowledged her mistake and came back in and apologised to those around. This is what godly behaviour looks like. She could have stomped out of the kitchen, thrown everything in the air, you know, had a fit and, and make a scandal in front of everybody, you know, with all the expletives and everything else. Not my mum. She wouldn't do that. Because she had a servant heart. She was a daughter, a child of God. And her reaction spoke to me volumes about how to respect and honour each other. And, and it was a memory that is etched on my mind forever. And I'll never forget it. And I could talk to my mother like that. But not sure, I'm not sure if other women in the church would be as kind or react in the same kind way as my mother did. Unfortunately today I might even see myself in court. I don't know. It's the world we live in, isn't it? But it's part of a family, surely. Which is what the Apostle, what the Bible says here. Surely we have to do this. We have to treat each other in a godly way. And finally, with younger women, we are to treat them like sisters. 
this is especially important for, for young pastors. Uh, we are to care for younger women and love them appropriately with purity. Purity, there's a word, as we would our own sister. I have heard and you have heard all too many stories of pastors and evangelists getting into all sorts of moral failures, taking advantage of those who are needy or who that's that difference in power, right? It becomes a real, real issue. So the Apostle Paul says, treat them with purity. That has to be a boundary right there. And verses 3 to 10, we come to caring for widows. Caring for widows. Give proper attention to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. So give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60. Has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her deeds, good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. So as we can see, the Apostle Paul is addressing a situation and, and speaking especially regarding the taking care of widows who were part of the church. In those days, and in many parts of the world today, most parts of the world today, we have to say, everybody got married. But at the same time, there were always wars, there were always conflicts. We don't have the, the, the industrial laws that we have today regarding protection of human life and all of those things. People, the men went out to work, mum stayed home, and the man not always came back. They died. And therefore, the widow was, was left at home. With the kids. So the wife, when the wife lost her husband, there was hardly anything else she could do to support herself. Some sought remarriage, they were young, others resorted to prostitution. Obviously, if they weren't Christians, that's what they did in society. And there are very few you say, well, why didn't they start a small business and that type of thing? Well, there are actually very few businesswomen mentioned in the New Testament. So, for example, we have Lydia who, who sold fine cloths in the, when Paul met her in Philippi. She was a businesswoman. I'm sure she would have employed others as well. But for most, when a woman found herself without a husband, they were particularly vulnerable 
especially if they didn't have a father or son or family to look after them. For this reason, soon after the birth of the church in Acts chapter 6, they already started to address, as more people came to the church, and we know that the church grew in the hundreds and the thousands, right, in the the early church in in Jerusalem. So they started to address some of these, these practical needs of those in church. But as with any social program, to do so justly and honestly and all of that, you're not going to make everybody happy. So some problems started to arise. And the book of Acts uh, tells us of the Greek widows who complained because they were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. That was an internal problem that the church had to tackle and it came at a particularly vulnerable moment of the church as well, just as it was growing exponentially. And that's when they appointed the deacons to address this particular issue. So Paul points out that the church should be there to take care of the widows who have no one else to help them and therefore their need is genuine. They should not waste time and resources on those widows who don't really need help. And so he he then gives the detailed qualifications for which widows to support and which not to support. And in Ephesus, uh, it looks like it was a sizable church because they they had means. And, you know, like we said, Ephesus was one of the the biggest uh, cosmopolitan cities of the ancient world. Um, They set up, as part of the church ministry, they set up a, a pension fund that was, people were giving into that, and from that fund it was distributed to widows who were in need. The widows were supported, who had nothing else, no other support. So this is one way that the church helped in a practical way. In return, those who were placed on this role, this list, let's call it a social security list, uh, they pledged themselves, not to just to, to do nothing, but they pledged themselves to help in the ministry of the church. So, it, it, I don't know, it could have been active, it could have been cleaning, it could have been visiting, it could have been helping prepare food, praying, it's mentioned here, and to really do whatever needed to be done as part of the church. Now, we need to be careful here because... The needs then are different to the needs today. I've mentioned that before. Foot washing, for example, is not a real need today as it was then. Right? Also, life expectancy is different today. So someone 60 years old, the Apostle Paul mentioned 60 years old, in those days didn't have a long time to live. 3 score and 10 was about the time when, you know, you go home. But, uh, so they, they, they weren't going to be a burden to the church for a very long time. So Paul spends a good amount of time focusing on two groups who may be in danger of taking advantage, advantage of the church and these are the young widows and the family of the widows. Now, some widows had Christian family who could help 
And they should have held, but for whatever reason, the word got to Paul that these people were not helping their own family. And this is sad. And he doesn't pull punches here when he comes to the responsibilities of family members and rebukes them by saying that they are worse than an unbeliever. So he's obviously talking to Christians here who should have been looking after grandpa and grandma and mum and dad, but weren't. James in his, in his letter says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is James 1.27. So our big concern should be for our parents and grandparents who cared for us when we were young. The Apostle doesn't talk about grace here, which is interesting. He doesn't talk about mercy. He certainly does talk about it. In other contexts, he talks about that. He says, be merciful to your mum and dad. Be gracious to your mum and dad. He, the apostle actually sees it as an obligation to your parents because you are repaying a debt. That's the language he's using. You're repaying a debt that you owe them for bringing you up. Changing your nappies. Putting up with you for all those years. How long is it going to take you to repay that? I don't know, you tell me. However, sometimes families are overwhelmed with the needs of family members or the mental health, or the, the medical needs are, are just too much. We know such cases, personally know such cases. In those situations, it is not wrong to ask for help. It is also not wrong to put in, in an ageing family member into care, into a nursing home, if they need that extra care. We live in a country like Australia where a lot of those services, thankfully, are still provided. What is sad, however, is that in Australia, for example, 40%, at least 40% of residents in nursing homes don't get visitors at all once they are put there. At all. Not for the whole year. 40%, almost half, right? In the US, it's actually worse. It's 60% never get visited. They just put their nursing home and never visited again. So love, therefore, needs to be much more than say, I love you. It's more than words. It means a willingness to be involved, sacrificially sometimes, put out of your way, practically, and, and, and be involved in a real way, to function as a church, to function as a family. Because that helps you in your own humanity. Because, guess what? The way you treat your parents, guess who's looking? Your kids, your own kids. 
right? And they're going to pass that on and say, oh, excuse me, Dad, look at how you treated your mom and dad. What about the younger widows from verses 11 to 16? As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. This is the list we were talking about. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get, they get into the habit of being idle and going from house to house. Not only they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. Very strong words. It's it's very direct. It is unfortunate, however, that passages like this have been used to accuse the Apostle Paul of being a misogynist or a woman hater. And you can imagine the words that were used about the, the Apostle Paul in the whole Me Too movement and, and all that. Many liberal theologians have in fact dismissed these words as old-fashioned, irrelevant for today because it appears to go against the advancement of women but in this church at least, let's not make the same mistake in just dismissing them as being out of context or out of time. What Paul is doing here is giving wise and practical instruction because of the dangers that he saw happening. He's concerned that the women in church don't behave in the same way as the women in the world. that they don't follow the way of the world, which is the way of Satan, the way of evil. And Paul knows that some women have already forsaken Jesus and started behaving like pagans. And remember that he doesn't want the, the, the church to turn into a welfare agency, supporting those who are not serving or, or who... Sh- who should be carrying their own load, but they're taking advantage of the goodness of the church. Unfortunately, this is all that many churches are known for today. There's no Christ-centred gospel, just a charity. When we were in, in, in the Castle Ray Street in the centre of Liverpool, I used to get heaps of calls. We used to run a ministry, remember, a food care ministry, distribute to those people. Sometimes they get calls and saying, I need food. Give me money. Well, I say, well, we don't give money. We, we, I, I go and buy a couple of bags of grocery for you. I go to the shopping centre, or you know, get the, take it to their home. The front porch. I remember one particular time, the front porch. They didn't even open the door. Just leave it there, thanks. The the pile of cigarette butts was this high. Right? This high, and there was a seat next to an empty seat because they were inside, a whole reeked of nicotine. So they had no money to 
buy food, but they had money to buy, you know, cigarettes. You can imagine what else they spent their money on. Because they had no money for food. And then suddenly, well, you're a church, aren't you? Lovely. Really joyful ministry that one was. I was doing my duty. Wow. That sense of entitlement, right, in society today, especially those of us who were born in poor countries and we grew up with nothing, okay? You live in Australia, you live in one of the most richest countries in the world. I'd say in the top 2 or 3% of the people in the world today, you are here now. You have nothing to wear. Don't you dare say, I have nothing to eat. I have nothing to wear. I get a lot of my clothes from Lifeline or, you know, there's a lot of shops you can buy clothes and even the latest fashion if you want. Look, we are privileged, beyond privileged. So the church should not become a charity, is what I'm saying. It should be gospel-focused, and yes, we, we, we try and help as many as we can, but we are not to be, become simply just some, a food distribution business. No, the, the food that we should be distributing is the gospel. Because in the end we could be saving somebody for this life, but not preparing them for the next our main focus as a church. I also think in this regard, therefore, and I'm going to say it's a bit harsh, okay? You know, anyway. I think Paul is making the case that on occasions you can't help the most by not helping them at all. Sounds cruel, doesn't it? Because, because what happens sometimes is that we can actually encourage helplessness, dependency, by helping, continuing to help. You foster laziness by simply giving people what they should really be earning through work. In Australia, there are situations of three generations of family, pain, you know, family just never gone to work. Just three generations just depending on social services. Total dependency. Is that the biblical model? Are you kidding me? And this is a, this is a big problem that we have created in a, in a civilised Western society like Australia. And much of our social security system has been abused just the figures on NDIS, for example, are just exploding because something created with the greatest of intention, it's a great thing to have. It's just been abused. You know, agencies being set up and just abusing rather than caring. But I'm great that as part of our church, we do have people who are benefiting from the NDIS. They're doing responsibly. This is exactly what should be happening. And that all of those who are abusing should be caught and prosecuted. 
Because then the money they use on that, waste on that, it doesn't go to the people who really are in need. Unfortunately, much of our social security system has become a mattress where people just lie on and expect to be fed rather than a safety net to catch those who really are in need. And you don't really want to sleep on a safety net. You want to get yourself better and get back into the rest of society. So there are two reasons for not helping younger widows. First, the danger here is of breaking their first pledge, which, um, which they made. What was this first pledge? It was the, they, they made this first pledge at, the moment, at a moment of deep commitment, but then found themselves unable to live up to their, to their pledge, to their vow. So Paul is addressing a situation where a young widow, for example, in a moment of grief, a deep grief or loss of a husband, she, she might say, you know, say her husband died three, four months ago, or whatever, and, and she says, no, I'm going to commit my life to Christ. I'm not going to get married. I'm going to remain celibate. I'm going to remain single for the rest of my life and just dedicate myself to God. But then, after a while, when the intensity of the grief has gone, a year or two later, she's still... You know, in the prime of her age and a strapping young man turns up to church. Ooh, look at that. You know? And she says, wow, maybe I should start thinking about marriage now. And the young man reciprocates the interest, blah, 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 and you know what goes on. So what happens is that the pledge that she has made of her singleness to Jesus and before God, she goes back on it and she finds herself, and now she finds herself in a conflict. I said I'm going to do this and now I'm doing that. So it's an awkward situation of having to break a promise and Paul doesn't want her to do that. Just stick to your word, to your promise, to your vow. Secondly, the other, the other danger with the young widows is that the danger of remaining single but becoming idle. Going from house to house, gossiping while watching desperate widows of Ephesus. Right? I must say that a lot of, most I would say of these so-called reality shows are nothing more than to satisfy our unhealthy appetite for gossip and slander. Terrible, terrible stuff, reality. And it's all set up and, you know. So some of these young widows could potentially find themselves with nothing better to do with their time than to sin. Therefore, they are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Because they've got time on their hands. They've got nothing to do. What are you going to do? Um, true story. I won't give too many names away, but um, somebody I knew uh, 
young married, one kid, lived overseas. Husband, because of economic need, went to another country, let's just say, to work. He died in a terrible accident. As a driver, he died and his young widow and and child were left back home. He was sending money. She was a, you know, a beautiful woman. Didn't waste any time being alone. A lot of men showed interest because of the insurance payment and the life pension that she was going to receive because of the death of her husband as long as she remained single. single. So, she never married, but became a socialite with all the money from a richer country that she was receiving and basically living the life of a a happy widow. And I'm sure you know stories like that as well. How is that? Now, she wasn't a Christian. Husband, yes, not, not her. But if that happens in a Christian context, I mean, you can see the dangers, right? When you've got time in your hands and you've got all this money and, and whatever, well, temptation is just too, too great. And, and so what the Apostle Paul is saying is that he that should marry. And, and just to be clear that it's not just single women or widows or, who are gossipers and busybodies in the church. This is a temptation for everybody to start talking about everybody else when it's none of your business. Married women along with men, single married, can also engage in bad habits if we've got too much time on our hands with nothing to do. And with the advent of social media, this has exploded, Right? Everybody's into everybody else's business. And we, this chat group here and this chat group there and this WhatsApp group here and all of this. So you know everything what happens, you know, from Norway to, to Paraguay to, I don't know, Cambodia. Everybody. They haven't got food, but they've got a smartphone. So if you've got time, use it wisely. Find an opportunity to serve. Don't be, don't be idle. Find something to do. Educate your mind. Use your hands. Seek opportunities to be useful for the kingdom. So Paul says to younger widows that rather than go through all of the swing of commitments between yes and no and unfulfilled promises to God, they should just remarry, fulfill their calling by living a godly married life. Stay at home, you know, bring up your kids, be a good wife, be a good mother. And by the way, the the, the Apostle Paul in, in another passage he doesn't believe that every person should marry, right? I mean, he's already said, he said in 1 Corinthians 7, not every person is, should be married. There are those who, he makes exceptions for those who want to dedicate themselves to the kingdom in, in a more, you know, serious way or full time. He says, if you want to dedicate yourself fully to God, perhaps it's better to remain, 
to remain single, but the rest should marry. In conclusion, verse 16. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. So here is a a general principle to be applied. That we should be helping those who really do need the help. Sometimes families are critical. I have received criticism. Some families are critical for the church not helping their loved ones. Yes, we should try to help any member of our church who is in need. But the words here are clear that the family themselves should be the ones doing the heavy lifting. The heavy lifting when it comes to caring for their loved ones who are in need. And there is no question, again, that we should help those who struggle in our church. But let's remember, the church is not to be a replacement for a person's own physical family. In some situations, yes, it is. They have no family, especially they are overseas, blah, blah, blah. They're here all alone. Then the church becomes a de facto family. And we are a spiritual family, but we cannot replace the physical family. Secondly, the church is not here to reward laziness or feed this sense of entitlement. Thirdly, the church is not a charity that supports the wider society. Sure, if we are able, we try and help those that we can and that when we see a need, we can't just stand by and do nothing. But we are here to first help those who are part of the family of God, which was our first reading, especially those who are part of the household of God. Fourthly, just a final reminder that the church is a family. May we behave as a family as we treat each other, the older, the young, the different male, female, fully respect, truly love as God has called us and in every way honour him. Amen.